Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to the Ruler podcast. I'm Ian Parkinson and I'm delighted to say that for this edition we're joined by one of the most innovative and interesting of the new breed of bike designers and manufacturers, Bob Parley. Welcome, Bob. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We're at uh, Bespoke Bikes in London and we'll be talking to Bob in a little while about the past, the present and the future of high-end bike design. I'm also joined by Ruler editor Ian Cleverly. Um, I guess later on we should talk a little bit about uh, issue 59, which is out at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think we can slip a little bit of that in the mix. Anything stand out in particular for you before we, uh, before we move on? Uh, well, it had to be Jan Orit. Um, I mean, anything that Morton and Jacob do is always fascinating and interesting and um they've done a great job uh it's fascinating from start to finish even though morton at the end of it says oh i thought this was rubbish we're going to go back and see him again um, which they will for the next issue so there is going to be a part two is there oh yes coming right up yeah well we'll also have the podcast competition later on but for the moment let's talk to our special guest bob parley of parley cycles bob um, can i ask you first of all how did you get started building bicycles because it wasn't what you started out doing in life was it boy through high school and all i was an artist and everyone expected me to go on to art school and and do that type of thing and i i had a love for boats and i also had a love for skiing and uh so I, you know, my first jobs really were in the ski industry. And then um, then after four or five years in that industry, maybe a little longer, I went on to boat building. And, while, and throughout that whole time, when I was in high school and all, I, I rode a lot. I rode, I rode to my girlfriend's house that was a few towns away. I rode to... You know, I rode everywhere, and I was into touring. I never knew about bike racing when I was younger. I did. I thought that was for an elite group of people, and that, you know, it wasn't something I was going to be able to do. So touring was my thing, and uh, I grew up in Massachusetts, and I would take trips around Massachusetts, uh, weekend trips, and some longer trips on up to New Hampshire and all, and then, you know, some big trips from 
up the coast of California, up through the Rocky Mountains into Canada and northern Canada and all that. And so, um, so that was my that was my introduction into bicycling, and I just love the freedom of being able to ride, being able to go wherever I wanted to go. But you actually went into boat building. Yeah, I went into boat building. Um, I had a great love for boats. I grew up around boats. My parents always had boats. Uh, my brother um, was into racing sailboats, and I raced with him for uh, a number of years and really enjoyed that. Ever since I can remember, though, I think it was part of the art thing because sailboats to me just had such graceful lines to them i loved drawing sailboats i loved designing sailboats and i thought i was going to be a naval architect and um but i did end up by building boats for i think it was around 27 years i built traditional wooden boats uh some classic beautiful wooden boats and also worked in offshore power boats, uh, some radical power boats, some of the fastest power boats in the world. And then that was a very short stint of mine. I'm much more into sailing. Um, and then worked for a, um, a builder in Massachusetts that built high-end, uh, what we call um, one-design sailboats. And we did a number of Olympic-class sailboats and some big boats as well and did some pretty radical work in that area. Was that when you started using carbon fiber? Yep, yep. That was, uh, yeah, it was um, mid-'80s or so, um, late-'80s, somewhere around there. And uh, working with things like Nomex honeycomb and uh, carbon fiber. And also it's where I got introduced to hydrodynamics, uh, I spent a lot of time building centerboards, rudders, skegs, that type of thing from everything from America's Cup boats, which was a very different beast back in that time frame. You know, then they would do maybe 12 knots. Now they do 50 knots. So, um, but we would build centerboards, rudders, that type of thing, just the same way you would design a wing section. So I learned a lot about hydrodynamics and how things move through the air and all, or and through the water. At what point then did you decide that your skills as a boat builder might be useful for making yeah. bikes? I was racing bikes at that time, and I have to say I was never very good at that. Uh, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the training part of it. I enjoyed you know that whole aspect of racing. But I, you know, I think I've won one race in my whole life, and that was... While I was building boats, I was racing bikes, and I was also um, designing bike frames and components. And I was going around to Interbike trying to sell my designs, and everyone's kind of patted me on the back and said, "That's nice," and uh, said, "We're not interested." But good so, luck. what's the time was that? What was that sort of nineties yeah. that you're doing? That? Yep, in the nineties. So, carbon fiber was sort of understood as a potential material for bikes but right but companies like like look had been building carbon fiber frames for a while and um you know and a few others out there so it you know it had been introduced but still was sort of that mystery material i think in the industry i'm sure i read something earlier about oyster farming i'm I'm not sure if that had any useful input towards the bike design oh god i i just you know, if if you want to pick apart everything, I, I've done a lot of a lot of a lot of interesting things. But yeah, I I was building boats, but I also had an interest in oyster farming and all because I always felt there was a. I didn't want to take from, an existing stock. I wanted to create my own stock and have, 
a something that I could draw from and be able to control that. And rather than depleting existing stocks, you know, want to be more responsible about it. So I did that on the side as I was building boats. But uh, unfortunately, we uh, at that time frame, and I'm still not even sure what it was, but all the all the oysters from uh, Maine to Maryland were wiped out. And I was sort of in the middle of all that. And I had about a million and a half oysters ready to go to market. And I lost every one of them. And uh, so I decided that I didn't want to do anything in Mother Nature any longer. So <laughs> it's back to bikes. And back to back bikes. To bikes and back and, to but then a, a year or two after I decided I wanted to, I, you know, I was moving ahead in bikes. My shop got hit with a flood and was totally <laughs> wiped out. So Mother Nature got me again. But <laughs> So people uh, initially weren't interested in buying your forks and components right, and things. Right. Uh, was that the point at which you thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll build my own bikes then? Yeah, I kind of evolved into that slowly. Um, and I have to say, I think I made some good friends in that. They liked what I was doing. But I decided, well, okay, if we're going to do this, you know, we really got to jump in and see what we can, where we can go with it. And... The boat building industry was sort of waning at that time. Um, custom boats were, you know, becoming fewer and farther between, and so I, you know, just made a rash decision. I, I knew what I wanted to do with carbon fiber. I knew I had some good ideas with working with materials. So it was a matter of okay, let's get that into a bike and see how it works. And what was it about carbon fiber? that made you think, actually, this is, whatever anyone else says, this is the right material to make bikes out of? I come from an air, from a place where like we were build, building traditional wooden boats. We get pieces of wood that we would have to plane and manipulate to go into this boat. And I always felt like I was cheating, you know, to go buy something off the shelf and make it fit into something. So with, so one aspect of carbon fiber i started off with sheets of carbon fiber in building tubes testing tubes learning about bending and torsion and all that and um so i was able to start with you know just sheets of carbon fiber and turn it into a bike and that to me i couldn't it, it just seemed like i didn't want to buy an existing tube that somebody else made also the characteristics of carbon, you can manipulate carbon, the fiber direction, the type of fiber, the layers, and how you put that together will have a huge influence on how that bike performs. And so that was, you know, where I started from. And that was the area that got me really excited about building a bike with that material. I think a lot of people will be surprised to hear that because I guess we sort of think of, of carbon fibre as a, a factory-built material and actually we regard, say, steel bike frames as your equivalent of wood-built boats. You know, the craftsmanship is in the steel yeah, and but carbon fibre comes out of the factories. That's certainly a, a, an opinion, isn't it? Sure, and I never understand that one because if I'm going to build a bike with steel tubes, I have to go buy that from somebody else. I can't make that steel tube. I can't design the characteristics of that steel tube to do what I want it to do. But I can take carbon fiber and by the, you know, how I lay it up, what direction I, I place that carbon fiber in that tube or the diameter of that tube or the modulus of the carbon fiber, I can control that whole process. So to me, 
it is, you know, the art. It is real art because there is a science with that designing of carbon fiber, but it's as much art. It's as much as, you know, this intuition that you have, like, you know, like if you look at a bike, it's like a, it's a truss frame, essentially. It's like a bridge. It's very strong, like, you know, vertically, but it's very narrow when you look down on it. And so the loads, you know, the loads in terms of your performance, in terms of the effort that you're putting into the bike, um, you can, you can manipulate that carbon fiber so that it has greater torsional strength and also tune that carbon fiber. So it has more vertical compliance. So you can create a, a smoother riding or more comfortable riding frame, but yet get that, not lose any performance by doing that. Back in the days when I used to get loaned bikes to do bike tests and, uh-huh. and stuff, and you know, a complete technical ignoramus, and I could mm. never put my finger on why something was good, but I, uh-huh. I'd, I got loaned one of your Z1s for the day. Uh-huh. And it was the only one that I felt at the end of the day I don't want to give this back, right? And I want to keep on riding. And I'm not saying that just because you're here. Just because I'm here. Yeah. Well, thank you. I appreciate. But could that, could but... you put your finger on that? Because I I I couldn't figure it out. You know, it just yeah. it just felt great. Yeah. Well, and that's the fun thing for me in this industry is that's the kind of comment I get from customers. They ride that bike and then they're they're sold, and so I love that kind of feedback. And to me, I can't just build something just to build it. I want to hear that kind of feedback from my customers. I want to build a great bike for my customers. I want my customers to fall in love with their bike. Um, And so it's, you know, for me, that first time, you know, like I spent more than a year, closer to two years, just building tubes and seeing how they bent and seeing how they reacted in terms of testing that tube and coming up with, you know, a plan for that. Um, My first, first bike that I built, and rode, you know, like I, I lived 30 miles from work. And so I rode that first bike home. I put all my components on it and got home and ride it, you know. And it's like, oh, this is great. The bike hasn't broken yet. And that was my first impression. You know, this is like, a, it's a rideable bike. And it's like, this feels really nice. Descending on that bike, you know, there's no wobble. That was one of the things that really set me off on my metal frames is that, you know, in racing, when you get into these wobbles and the guy next to you is in one and it's like, I know I can design that out of the frame. And, uh, you know, it just did everything I wanted it to do. It's an exciting feeling for me to be able to get on my bike and feel that way. Do you notice an awful lot of people on bikes that are wrong for them? I mean, do you, do you actually sort of just look at them and keep it zipped? Because I, 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 I see it increasingly, especially with the the flood of new cyclists over here, they buy what the pros are riding. Sure. Now that, that, to my mind, that bike is built for a professional young person. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> and you well, see them climbing off and grabbing their backs. Right. And you kind of think, well, you know, you're yeah. on the wrong bike. Yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. I was in the ski industry for a fairly long time, and I did a lot of work with making boots fit people's feet. You know, a ski boot tends to not want to you know, a foot doesn't really want to go into that and be comfortable. So I spent a lot of time making ski boots comfortable, but I also worked in sales and I would have a customer come in and I knew the guy was not never going to race. He was never going to be, you know, putting that, you know, a race ski to its limits. 
And I would say to him, buy this ski. You'll be a lot more comfortable at the end of the day. You're going to feel like you can ski all day long on this ski and have a lot of fun. Where this race ski is going to wear you out and going to, if you make mistakes on it, it's going to make those, exaggerate those mistakes. And, you know, I think in designing a bike, it's very similar to that, you know, that kind of mentality. A lot of um, carbon bike manufacturers sort of take the opportunity to uh, use very exotic looking shapes or, yeah. you know, sort of unusual, unconventional shapes. Sure. But actually, most of your bikes yeah. look like bikes. Yeah. Is that a deliberate thing? Yeah, very deliberate. Um, when I first started building bikes, I wanted to build round tubes and straight lines. And the reason for that in carbon fiber, carbon fiber is easily manipulated, but if you manipulate it in such a way where you get creases or folds or it binds up or you're, you know, you're losing structural quality in that frame. And um, so I try to keep my frames as simple as possible. And I always stressed straight lines and since we've gone to ovalizing tubes and now because of disc brakes we have to have a little bit of shape in our chain stay and seat stay but i keep those lines to a minimum i want them as straight as possible you know my shapes have to make sense to me i you know and and in doing that the carbon reacts to that you know i i just feel that making difficult shapes compromises carbon fiber looking at some of your sort of time trial and triathlon bikes as well they do have a sort of aerodynamic aspect to them but it looks different to other people's are you um, a little skeptical of some claims about aerodynamics on bikes yeah it's funny we just came out of the wintel and we um been working on a new design probably a 2017 frame but it's i have so much fun designing that frame and then i put then you think, I think, oh, I got to put these bars on it where they have these pads and everything, and it's just blowing everything that I've done on that frame. And then you got to put the rider. Then you got to put the rider on it and all. So, um, so it's really difficult. Um, my from boat building, we used to build extreme what we called NACA sections that would develop lift that were you know very critical. So like. Like if you know, like an airplane wing for a 747 or so, it's fairly big and all. But if you look at a glider, it has what you would call a very high aspect ratio wing. They're very effective, but very critical. So if you don't fly them properly, they stall and they, and they create drag and they will fall out of the sky. In a bike frame, my feeling is that I want to build a section that has the greatest amount of latitude in it. It's not going to go 100 miles an hour. I'm not trying to fly this thing. But it, I don't want it to be so critical that if you get a little bit of breeze or a little bit of yaw angle, it's going to start stalling quickly. So when I design a section, I design a section that has the ability for a greater yaw angle. I've done some very radical designs, but every time you know we go to test them, we're not finding anything significantly better than the basic designs we have. So... My tube shapes and all not only are effective in the wind and to greater yaw angles, but I can design more comfort into that bike as well. And um, and there's some designs you know great in the wind tunnel, but yeah. impractical when you get them on the road in the yeah. real world. 
I, I'm really struggling with that, that. You know, the wind tunnel testing doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me. You know, obviously it does make sense. It, it allows us to compare bikes with other bike frames. But you watch, and I'm, I'm trying to... I'm trying to write an article about this and and making trying to make sense of it. You know, like if you look at a bike frame, they start, you know, like with a you know say a zero yard yard angle, they're going straight into the wind, and then they go off to twenty degrees, and they show these bikes that are getting more efficient as they go off the wind. If you take an airplane and you're flying along with a certain angle of attack, you know, so that it's flying. Um, and then you start climbing with that frame, you're changing that angle of attack. If you change that angle of attack too much, say like 15 degrees or so, th- that wing starts to stall. And stalling is drag. And a plane becomes a rock when it starts stalling. You know, they fall out of the sky. Um, with a bicycle, you know, we're seeing these your angles where they're testing out to 20 degrees and you're not seeing that stalling and I'm not sure how that's happening so I'm trying to make sense of that and uh, so you know so hopefully come back to me in a few months and maybe we'll have that figured out I, 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 I did the, the one of the most fascinating uh, tech articles for me anyway that I did was with Paul Lou from uh-huh. Reynolds, Reynolds Wheels and yeah. his his take on it was the whole wind tunnel thing is totally messed up you know the the, the speed that, yeah. for, for starters but yeah. um i put it to him at the end i said it, so theoretically if you could make uh bearing in mind we've got disc brakes now yeah. and this just you know this is a theoretical thing if you could make a rim that was wavy like yeah. a, a a permanently going one way and then the other uh-huh. that would be more efficient yeah, he he reckoned theoretically it yeah. would work. Well, you know, going back to my ski time, I, I used to race downhill, and uh, you know, there again, I was an amateur skier, just you know, just having fun out there. But the pros came to town one day, and the thing I noticed that these pros are skiing with round ski poles, and you hear them coming down the mountain. These guys are powerful, and they're going fast. And the thing that notice you know you notice their power and how fast they're going first of all but the next thing you know for me i'm noticing these ski poles are making a lot of noise they're round so round section is horrible in the wind and they're just vibrating and so i figured well let's make an aero section so i started doing that and i started doing my wind tunnel test in my truck you know hanging the ski pole out the window at you know 10 20 you know 30 miles an hour and we get up to 20 miles an hour and the ski pole's taken off on me because it's actually developing lift. And so I said, well, this isn't going to work. So I figured the best way to solve this problem is if I could make a ski pole that could you know, be like a weather vane. The wing section would orient itself into the wind all the time so that, you know, so it's not, so it's always orienting itself into the best position. And I thought, well, if I could make a bike that way, that would be the ideal way to build wing sections, but somewhat complicated on a bike. Well, the other question I think that a lot of people have about carbon fiber is its longevity, because yeah. we kind of know how long steel will last. Sure. You know, a well-looked-after steel frame will last right. your lifetime or longer. But at the moment, we kind of don't know how long carbon frames last. Yeah. Have you got any ideas on that? Well, Carbon fiber in itself, if it's taken care of, will have a probably a better life than steel or aluminum, especially. 
problem with carbon fiber is impact. Um, in terms of bending and all, you know, repeated bending, carbon fiber doesn't mind that. It can take that and not be, not degrade. Um, but, you know, the biggest thing is, you know, the impact in carbon fiber. And for me, that's, you know, something I have to live with. But, you know, taking care of that frame, it, you know, it's going to last as long as a metal frame, probably longer, really. As long as you don't crash it. As long as you don't crash it. And, you know, for me, the ride quality, the performance that I can get out of carbon fiber outweighs that. So, What's next, do you think? How long do you think carbon fiber will remain the preeminent uh, material for high-end bikes? I read the other day that people were talking about the possibility of thermoplastics being yeah. the next thing. What, what do you think is next? Yeah, I'm not, you know, I do know thermoplastics. I don't know it that well. I, I don't see thermoplastics right now in the use of a frame. Um, I see carbon fiber as the opt- optimum material. We still use basically the same carbon fiber we used when I first started buying frame, when I first started building frames. But how we use it has changed somewhat. You know, the thickness of the ply, the modulus of the ply, um, and all. Uh, but at the moment, carbon is the material. People start talking about graphene and uh, nanotubes and that type of thing and, uh, and other materials. But at the moment, you know, we keep our eye open uh, in this area and uh, we try new materials, we try new systems, but we're still basically doing the same thing we were doing right from the beginning. Well, Pali, fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah. Uh, before you go, can we ask you to, um, have you picked out a favourite photograph from uh, the current issue of yeah. Ruler 59? What, what, what caught your eye? Yeah, it was uh, towards the middle of the magazine. Or this, this, I, I don't even know who this artist is. I, I, I wish I could, I, I wish I had time to read about it more before I had picked it, but I, uh, this one here is pretty spectacular, I think. Um, I don't have my glasses on, so I... His name is Jeff Parr. Um, he's a British guy who lives down in the south of France. Uh-huh. And um, actually, what you don't get from from that photograph is is the, the size of the that size canvas. Of that's what it... it's, it's enormous. Uh, beautiful. Um, and most, uh, most of the ones that we've picked out in the issue are uh, Giro-inspired, I think uh-huh. it's fair to say. There's a lot of pink going on. Um, but he just has a beautiful take. Yeah. The lines are, uh, uh, you know, it, it moves. You know, it, it's it's yeah. really interesting. We have a graffiti wall behind my factory, and it's a sanctioned graffiti wall. And some of the best graffiti artists in the in the world show up there, and so I I quite often go out there and take pictures of of it. It's amazing what people can do. These big pieces like this i'm always impressed so we've got about half a dozen examples in the magazine and if you want to look at jeff's work further i believe he's known as velo art jeff parr-veloart.com yeah yeah it's great i love it thanks again bob thank you you're welcome i should say (laughs) ian what was your favorite uh, photo from the uh, from issue 59 i went for page 38 which is essentially jan ulrich's arm his, his head does appear in it. Um, it's one of uh, Jakob Christian Sorensen's shots of Jan riding, and um, I don't know. It just it just struck me immediately when I first the when he sent through. This is a current a one, isn't it? Is, this is this one of him on his sportive. Or yes, yeah. yes. In 
in Austria. It's quite a chunky sunburned arm, isn't it? It's a chunky sunburned arm, yeah. That uh, blonde hair bleached. Well, for me, uh, there's a picture of an unidentified rider. We think it may be... Maybe Jimmy Anglevon. Yeah, but I'm only yeah. I'm only going from the from his broad shoulders from from that from this rear view. Yeah. But um, there's a lovely picture of it on the uh, Europe Car article, which again is fascinating, tracing the uh, history of that French team through all their various incarnations. And uh, it's a lovely picture of uh, Lone Rider on what looks like a individual time trial. It going, is, yeah, yeah. There's an individual time trial um, up a hill by the look of it, with you know, yeah, the crowd in front of him it's a, it's a great great shot so it's probably competition time isn't it um yes yeah, we've been a, we've been a bit slack on competitions lately we have yeah, yeah. it's time to if time to revise pass over the, um, um <laughs> yes gloss gloss straight over that gloss one. over uh what happened to the competition last time and uh, so what's what, what's the question this time how do people enter and what's the prize Okay, um, if you go onto the Ruler website, ruler.cc, and onto the podcast page there, we'll, uh, we'll do it via that page. There'll be uh, a little box there that you can fill in. Um, the prize is um, a copy of issue 57 with Sean Kelly on the front, signed by Sean Kelly. So that's quite right. nice, quite nice. Question would be good, wouldn't it? Oh, okay, um, Martin Proctor's illustration... Uh, in this issue is based on the Ruler Awards, which were held at the Ruler Classic a couple of weeks back in London. Um, can you tell us, in order to win the signed copy of issue 57, what was voted by our esteemed panel uh, and me? Uh, I didn't vote for it, I must say. But what was voted the one-day race of the year the one day race of this year at the ruler awards at the ruler classics yes okay and go to issue 59 and look at martin proctor's um cartoon to do that enter via the ruler website so that's it from this edition of the ruler podcast thanks to bob parley thanks to ian cleverly thanks to you for sticking with us we'll speak next time Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.